Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, John Morrison McLarnon discusses his book, Ruling Suburbia, John J. McClure and the Republican Machine in Delaware County. John McLarnon, author of Ruling Suburbia, John J. McClure and the Republican Machine in Delaware County, Pennsylvania. You start off your book in 1953 when John McClure is being named Delaware County Man of the Year. Why do you pick that point to start your book? Well, number one, I thought it was a good introduction, but number two, I, I wanted to start off and make sure that I, I identified John McClure in the way most people that are still alive today would know him as someone that was this, this grand old man of the county, the man that had uh, done the most uh, to contribute to Delaware County life as, as people knew it then. Uh, but by the second paragraph or so, I, I kind of introduced the other side of McClure or what the small minority of detractors you know, thought of him, that he wasn't the grand old man of the county, that uh, there was his, his background, uh, his history as a politician um, was less than grand, I guess is the best way to, the most politic way to put it. How so? Well, he was convicted, he was the lead defendant and convicted in the single largest prosecution for violation of the Volstead Act in 1933. Initially it was he and approximately 90 other people that were rounded up. What was the Volstead Act? The Volstead Act uh, was the, the law that actually put prohibition into effect in this country. And at John Mc, that was, this was the 1920s, 1920 to 1933 is prohibition. John McClure won uh, office to the state senate in 1928 running as a supporter of prohibition. Uh, and in the few years that he was in, in Harrisburg became one of the most powerful Republicans in the senate and probably the, the most visible and vocal opponent of Gifford Pinchot and Pinchot's various reform, Pinchot was the governor at the time, Pinchot's various reform attempts. But nonetheless, he was, he was publicly, he was a dry. He was in favor of prohibition, when in fact, he was the mastermind and the ringleader of this large countywide bootlegging and extortion operation, um, which eventually came to light. He and these other 90 or so people were arrested in 1933 and put on trial, and he was convicted. Um, as it turned out, he never went to jail. He was sentenced to 18 months in jail and had to pay a fine, and I forget, a couple of thousand dollars. But because prohibition had been repealed, the federal government decided to drop all prosecutions, all legal um, activities that had to do with prohibition. So he kind of, he avoided being, going to jail. And in point of fact, the people in the county, I think, by and large, were not too upset with this because the county, uh, majority, the majority of people in the county never supported prohibition in the first place. So this was, he was viewed as kind of a Robin Hood. You know, he was just giving them what they wanted, but the law forbade. However, eight years later, he was back in court, this time uh, charged with masterminding a scheme to 
essentially steal a quarter of a million dollars from the city of Chester and had to do with a very involved uh, plan that they had to, that Chester had to buy the, the waterworks from uh, the, privately, the private company that owned the waterworks at the time. And John McClure put himself in the position of being the go-between. He arranged the sale and to, to make a, a long story very short, what he did is he and about five or six of his close associates bought the water company for three quarters of a million dollars, told the company that they bought it from, don't cash the check yet, and the next day turned around and sold it to the city of Chester for a million dollars. And they, 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 they profited to the tune of a quarter million dollars. He was put on trial again. So John McClure was able to tell the city to buy the water company? John McClure ran the city. The, the, the mayor, the city council were all his hand-picked men. Um, he didn't hold any public office. He, he hadn't since he, he left the Senate in 1934. But nonetheless, he ran the county, and absolutely, they did exactly what he told them to do. The difficulty was that it wasn't clear that he had done anything illegal. Since he wasn't a public official, he hadn't used his public office you know, for, for personal gain. But clearly, he had done something that, in many people's minds, was immoral. And he was put on trial, along with these five or six other people. Uh, he was found not guilty. It's not clear whether the trial was rigged or not. Unfortunately, there are no records uh, of that trial. Unlike the federal trial for, trial for prohibition, you can walk across the street here to uh, 9th and Market into the archives and read the entire transcript of the prohibition trial. But when I went out to Delaware County, this was a, the second trial was in county court, when I went out to the archives uh, to try and look at that transcript to see what had gone on, uh, I couldn't find anything. And I asked the archivist at the time, where's the records? I can't find anything. They, they don't seem to be where they're supposed to be. And he said, well, I'll look for them, but uh, I don't really hold much hope. Remember who I worked for. <laughs> so all I had to go on in that trial was the newspaper reports. And fortunately for me, the opposing counsel were still alive. They were both men in their 90s. The prosecutor was a man named Guy DeFuria. Uh, the lead defense attorney was C. William Kraft, who would go on to be a federal judge. When I talked to DeFuria, I said to him, I said, from your comments in the papers at the time, this is 1941, you seem to think that the trial was, that was rigged. And he said, oh, absolutely. There was no doubt in my mind that it was rigged. And I, I asked him, how so? And he said, well, every day a man named Al Granger who was a senior vice president for Philadelphia Electric Company, would walk into the courthouse and come down and shake John McClure's hand and, and make a big production out of uh, his friendship with McClure and it sat through the entire trial. One of the jury members was an employee of the Philadelphia Electric Company. And when, after the trial was over and it went to the jury, the jury deliberations, the initial vote in the jury was 11 to 1 for conviction, uh, the one holdout being this employee of the Philadelphia Electric Company. And DeFuria went on to say that, that it was his belief that employees at the courthouse, who also were political patronage job holders, they were appointed or chosen by McClure or his subordinates, uh, started leaking stories to the jury. The jury was sequestered. Leaking stories about a 
scarlet fever epidemic that had broken out in the county and that some of the, the jury's uh, family members were ill. Well, we, you have this one guy holding out for acquittal and the rest of the jurors getting more and more anxious about the health of their family members and after a couple days the, the vote went from 11 to 1 for conviction to 12 nothing for acquittal but they had McClure and his associates pay the cost of the trial. Was there a scarlet fever no. outbreak? No, there was not. Um, now, I, uh, to be fair, I, I talked to, to Judge Kraft also. I, you know, I, I had been told he was still alive and I, that he was living in Florida. And I called directory assistance in Key Biscayne and got a number for him and called him up and he answered the phone. And he told me he and Guy DeFuria were fast friends. You know, they had been members of the bar for years and years. But when I told him what DeFuria had said about the trial, he, he said, oh, no, he said, that, that, that's just patently not true. So we couldn't, you know, you have to understand our reputations as lawyers were on the line here. Everything was above board. So the, the upshot of it was John McClure was found not guilty. Um, but So he got to keep the $250,000? Yes, he did. But the sentiment in the county was completely different. Where he had been convicted the first time and the county just really didn't care, the second time he was found not guilty and the county was very upset about uh, about his his apparent greed you know here's a rapacious political boss that's uh, even collecting even even more money on the backs of the citizens of Chester um, the not the lead prosecutor that was guy de Fury but his assistant was a guy named Bill toll who went on to be a judge in the county and his summation uh, he ended with there's a sign on the top of the I guess the Philadelphia Electric Building, what Chester takes, you know, the, what Chester makes, the world takes, and it should read what Chester makes, McClure takes, or something like that. So, um, you know, with these two rather public encounters with the law, um, there was a lot, there, uh, there was a, a number of people who believed that McClure was anything but the grand old man in Delaware County. Uh, the second trial, resulted in a political war that broke out between him and Joe Pugh, Jr., uh, from the Sun Oil Company, because Pugh was thoroughly disgusted with McClure at that point. Had they been allies before that? They had been, yeah. Um, after, McClure's, after McClure left office in 1934, left the Senate, he went into kind of semi-retirement. And Joe Pugh, who by this point in time was a, a dedicated foe of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal and was watching the country go more and more democratic, uh, wanted to save Delaware County. He thought John McClure, uh, bootlegging conviction notwithstanding, would be the best man to keep Delaware County democratic. So he personally made a trip to Florida and brought John McClure back out of retirement, back to the county. But after the bootlegging trial, Pugh changed his mind about McClure and sponsored a few candidates for public office. Probably the most prominent was a man named E. Wallace Chadwick, uh, who ran for Congress against the McClure machine, ran as an as a, a independent Republican funded by Joe Pugh and the Pugh family. But there were bitter wars through the mid-40s. They finally settled down, and I guess they, I don't know, because unfortunately political machines don't leave paper trails. You know, <laughs> There's not a lot of memos about what they do. Um, but by the late 40s, the, the internal 
squabbling within the Republican Party had finished, John McClure had clearly emerged once again as the undisputed leader of the county. And then there's this very strange metamorphosis that, that goes on between about 1948 and 1953, where he goes from being convicted felon and swindler uh, to this great man, uh, man of the year. And that was 53. Three years later, PMC, now Widener University, uh, awarded him an honorary doctor of laws, which some of the more cynical people in the county suggested was totally appropriate. I mean, who knows more about the inside of a courtroom than John McClure? <laughs> <laughs> now, for, pe for people who don't know about it, can you d describe briefly uh, Delaware County and also the city of Chester? Well, Delaware County is the third smallest county in the state land-wise. Where is it located? It's located in the extreme southeast corner of the state, between the, the southern border of Philadelphia and the Delaware state line, right up along the Delaware River. Uh, for most of McClure's tenure as the, the political boss of the county, it was the third largest county population-wise. In essence, the eastern part of the county along the Delaware River, uh, running from Darby all the way down to the city of Chester, was pretty much an extension of southwest Philadelphia. Um, but as you go out further into the county, particularly in the 20s and 30s and 40s, it's rather rural. And today, Delaware, Delaware County really is a study in contrasts. It, from its northern borders, which butt up against Montgomery County and the main line, and you have uh, townships like Radnor and Marple, which are rather upscale, upper, upper middle class. And at the other extreme, you have the city of Chester, which is the only, only city in the county, uh, and at one point was the, the focal point of life in the county at the turn of the century. Uh, as the county grew more and more populous, as farms turned into suburban bedroom communities, I like to say, as, and as, Chester's, as, as the population of Chester grew smaller and smaller as the uh, compared to the total population of the county, its electoral importance to the Republican Party diminished to the point where today it's kind of an afterthought. The city is still there. It's uh, in most, I've seen a number of sociological studies and economic studies about Chester. It's a, it's a very terribly economically depressed city. Um, if you had gone to Chester on the eve of World War II, say, you would have found a vibrant city full of manufacturing, Westinghouse Electric, the Sun Shipyard, American Viscous, uh, the Baldwin-Lima locomotive plant, any number. Of they, uh, people came from the New Jersey, from Delaware, and from all over southeast Pennsylvania to work in Chester. And it was also a, a, a big retail, a shopping area in Chester. But most of the industry left. And as more and more African-Americans moved into the city, you have the, the phenomenon that most cities go through with white flight to the suburbs in the post-war era. And as the tax base diminished, as more and more people were in the suburbs, Chester just really didn't matter anymore. So now you have the city is still there. Every once in a while, there's talk about an economic renaissance down there. Um, I heard rumors in talking to people about this book People talked about riverboat gambling and how that would be the, the key to Chester's rebirth. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen with riverboat river gambling, and I don't know whether it will happen for Chester, but right now Chester is a, 
it's, it's a sad story. It really is. But that's the only city in the county. And for most of John McClure's tenure, which was 1907 to 1965, Chester was the center of political activity and the center of life for the county. So he was the political boss from, you said, 1907 to... He was, yeah, 1907, 1965. 1965. It, the, the machine, the Republican machine that ruled Delaware County for most of the first half or into the second half of the 20th century was actually born in 1874-75 of an alliance between a man named Thomas Clayton and William McClure, John McClure's father. Uh, Clayton was a renegade Republican who successfully was elected uh, to the bench in Delaware County when there was only one judge in the county. And his biggest supporter was Billy McClure, who happened to be part owner of a brewery in Chester. He owned a retail and wholesale liquor business in Chester. And this is at a time when saloons, bars, what they used to call hotels, were the centers for political organization, for social life. Um, as Clayton's tenure, and Clayton would remain a judge up until about the turn of the century, uh, but as, as his tenure as a judge proceeded, Billy McClure accumulated more and more power, uh, first in Chester itself and then spread to the to the, the balance of the county until by about 1900, Bill McClure was the acknowledged Republican leader in the county. Among his protégés were William Cameron Sproul, the only governor that Delaware County has ever produced, uh, Judge McDade, Alfred McDade, who sat on the bench for a couple, a, a couple decades. But nonetheless, he was the boss by 1900. He died rather early. Uh, in his, he was in his mid-50s, suddenly got sick and died in 1907. And he literally willed the machine to his son, John, who at the time was a junior at Swarthmore. 21 years old. Yeah, yeah. Um, John left school, and uh, apparently Billy left some orders with some of his lieutenants that uh, John was to be in charge, but he was young, you know, he was, he was still, uh, he didn't know that much about it. And they were supposed to shepherd him through what McClure knew, what the father McClure knew would be some rough times. Why did the party leaders follow this 21-year-old kid who had no experience? I think because of the name. Even, even at that point in time, the name McClure had so much political capital. Plus, Bill McClure's brother David was still alive. David, from all accounts, was not particularly a leader, but he, he was, had a part in politics. He was district attorney at one point in time. And David made sure, I think, that, that there was no real serious challenges early on to John McClure's tenure. But nonetheless, between 1907, when, when John took over, and about 1920 or 21, he, he went through a series of, of rough times that probably without the help of his uncle and without the strength of the Republican machine that Billy McClure had built, probably would have destroyed him. There was a, a terrible uh, transit strike in 1908 that uh, during the course of the strike, the strikers were blowing up tracks and bridges and uh, fighting with the state militia and the state police. And the Republican machine, because the populace for at least the beginning of the strike was sympathetic to the strikers, the Republican machine did nothing to 
bring the violence to a halt. And it wasn't until the, the county finally got fed up after about five or six months that they finally decided to do something. Um, and they survived this particular dilemma. Then in 1912, they had a, a, a scandal that probably would have destroyed most machines. In 1912, there's a split in the Republican Party nationwide. Um, President Taft was running as an incumbent. Teddy Roosevelt, who had wanted the Republican nomination but didn't get it, bolted the Republican Party and ran as a third party, as a progressive of the Bull Moose Party. And the Republican leaders in Delaware County were very concerned that the split at the national level would cause a split among Republican voters and lead to the worst possible thing, Democrats getting elected to local office. Um, so they got enough signatures on petitions to have the Republican candidates also listed on the Progressive Party ballot. And they proceeded to win. The Democrats won almost nothing that year, as they typically do. Um, but the Democratic nominee or Democratic candidate for state office was curious about how they were able to get so many signatures so quickly on these petitions. So he actually went and physically inspected the petitions. And what he found was that the, all the, the signatures were in alphabetical order and they were all in the same handwriting. Uh, so, a very efficient way of collecting yes, signatures. Yes, absolutely. Uh, he took this to the, uh, the district attorney in Delaware County and he charged that this was electoral fraud and the, the, the whole case came before the Delaware County grand jury after the election action in December of 1912. And the grand jury refused to in indict any of the people who had witnessed the, the signatures. Um, not only that, but they charged, I think it was Eugene Bonnewell, if I'm not mistaken, but they charged him $600, essentially for wasting the grand jury's time. Um, he got even more angry about this, so he started poking around some more. Now, back then, the way jurors were chosen, every year they would take a certain number of names, and they, they knew the names, and they would stick them in this, this big wheel, kind of like one of these game show wheels, and they would just pull out names uh, for their grand juries and pettit juries. Well, he looked at the list of, of all the people that had been chosen for, grand, for jury duty that year and determined that half of the people on the grand jury that heard his case had not been chosen for jury. They weren't on the list to be jurors that year which led to an even bigger investigation or attempted investigation by the Democrats, um, which never came to anything. For about two years, they tried to find out who had, who had fixed the jury system. Um, they thought that perhaps if they could find, apparently some of the names, there were other names that were not scheduled for jury duty in the wheel, and their names had been typed on little pieces of paper. And the typewriter they had been typed on was there were some, some peculiarities in the, in the type itself. And for a while, they were running around the courthouse trying to find out where this typewriter was, whose office was this typewriter in, because if we can just find this, we can find out who's behind it. And I remember reading in the Chester Times uh, some editorial about how futile this whole effort was. It, 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 the, the Times said that this, the people of Chester had a better chance of seeing an iceberg float down the Delaware River past Chester on the 4th of July than they did of ever finding that typewriter. But nonetheless, it, for about two years, it was, it was really a, a hot topic. But the Republican machine, the organization stonewalled, and eventually it went away as, as 
the country got closer and closer to war, you know, the First World War, the jury wheel scandal didn't seem to be that big a deal. I want to read something from your book where you, you run down some of the activities of the, uh, the Republican machine, and you say here, at the turn of the century, it provided food, work, and police protection to Chester's European and black immigrants. Through the Depression, patronage kept a significant portion of the machine loyalists employed. In the 1950s and 60s, the machine kept taxes low, initiated a war on organized vice. The trash was collected, the snow plowed, the streets repaired, the buses were on time, the playgrounds and parks were clean, the little leagues ran on schedule, and the schools were acceptably average. Mm -hmm. So what's so wrong with having a political machine? Well, Sounds that's, pretty good. This is the, this is the problem. Uh, <laughs> Guy de Furia probably said it best. He told me they got their power and they maintained their power illegally. But in the final analysis, the county wasn't governed too badly. I interviewed 17 or 18 people that had spent some portion of their life fighting the Republican machine. Every single one, with, a, with a, one exception, one man, everyone said the same thing, that yeah, their, their, their behavior, their uh, cheating at the polls, the patronage, the numbers of people in the courthouse that have no clue what they're doing but are there because you know, they get out to vote on election day, they're good party workers. It's, uh, it's not legal, it's, it's not democracy. But nonetheless, the people in the county, by and large, were satisfied. Um, and the, the, the few times that Democrats have gotten elected to office in various places, it, it's proven to be a disaster. Somebody at one point said that the, the, the worst, absolute, the worst threat to, to the Democratic Party in Delaware County is success. You know, if you want to destroy them, elect them to office. Which, and I guess 1991 is an example when Chester finally elected a Democratic mayor. They had one in 1904, and then it was straight Republicans until 1991. And she was such a disaster that they went back to the Republican Party four years later. But I guess it, it depends on what you want. If you are an idealist, if, if democracy is what you're all about, and, and democracy at any cost, then yeah, then these guys should have all been in jail, I guess. But if what you want is a government that's responsive to a majority of the people, that, that does what the majority of the people want, then how can you fault them? And it's, that, that's a philosophical um, argument that you can have. How did it work? How did the machine work? Patronage I mean, and macing. That's how it worked. I mean, that, they're the two, that, that's the foundation, uh, th those two things. Patronage is, well, most people understand it to just be jobs, whether it's county jobs, city jobs, borough jobs, but it's a lot more than that. There was a certain number of jobs to be given out, and they were doled out to people who were faithful to the machine. But beyond that, there's also this kind of second tier of patronage. The city, the county, the boroughs, they all own buildings. They have to be insured. Who do you choose to insure them? Uh, every one of these political entities has to advertise. They have legal advertisements that have to go in newspapers. What newspapers do you put them in? The city of Chester, the county, they all have indigents, you know, people that, that die with no money and have to be buried. What undertakers do you choose to, to have the buried in? Uh, every single borough in the county has a solicitor. School districts have solicitors. What lawyers do you choose? You choose the ones that are loyal Republicans. Um, 
patronage is a powerful, powerful weapon. Now, with the advent of civil service, uh, patronage is not as important as, say, it was 100 years ago. But in 1963, when due to a very strange set of circumstances, you had two of the three county commissioners um, in opposition to the machine, and they, uh, they had an efficiency study of the courthouse done, and they found that there were typists that couldn't type, and stenographers that couldn't take shorthand, and mechanics that couldn't fix vehicles, but they all knew how to get out their vote on election day. So patronage was number one, and the other one was macing. Um, which for most of the history of the state has been illegal. And uh, the way I like to define macing to my students is, macing is requiring voluntary contributions to the party. Because you, <laughs> you can't require somebody that holds, a, that holds a, a, a municipal job, a public job, to contribute to the party. But you can make it understood that failure to contribute might lead to the loss of your job. And it got to the point in Delaware County, everyone knew that there was this sliding scale. It was almost like a, a progressive Republican machine tax. Depending on your salary range, you paid a certain percentage of your gross salary to the party. The Chester Times, which has had an on-again, off-again relationship with the Republicans, and one of the times where they were opposing the machine, uh, did a long expose on the macing system in Delaware County. Um, and they printed the numbers, you know, 2% of your salary was below $5,000. I forget what the exact numbers are. But it was, it was understood that you paid. Even judges uh, who are supposed to be apolitical, in order to be, and if I was told this by a man who was being considered uh, for nomination to run for the court, um, a judge is elected for 10 years. Well, once you're on the bench, you can't be political. So a, somebody that was being considered to run on the Republican ticket, which was tantamount to being elected in Delaware County, they were expected to contribute 10% of that 10-year salary. In essence, one-year salary to the party. Up front. Up front, before they were nominated, yeah. And if you think about this, this is a remarkable system because this means essentially that the organization has this independent source of funds. They don't have to go to businesses and get big contributions. And it's literally public money. So the organization is being funded with tax money. What would they do with the money? Well, they would just use it for, the, for campaigns. Um, political campaigns, buttons, whatever you would do. Television time, newspaper time. Uh, I, I have to say that John McClure was not a thief. He's, he may have been a lot of things, but he was, he was not in politics. And I, don't, I didn't run into anybody in the county that was involved in politics primarily for his own enrichment. Um, McClure left a significant estate when he died, but that's because he was a good businessman. He had an insurance business, and he was also he, he speculated a lot in the stock market quite successfully. Well, you also mentioned a, a McClure construction and paving company that well, kind of yes, had a monopoly did that. on oh, yeah, county yeah. business. Um, again, patronage. Yeah, he had a paving company. He had a construction company that, that built uh, the, the high school in Chester at the time. He also was part owner of a brewery during uh, Prohibition. Yes, yeah, the, the Chester Brewery. Actually, 
He claimed that he had sold his interest at the beginning, but the papers indicate otherwise. Uh, and the brewery continued to operate through Prohibition. Actually, Prohibition was a strange time in Delaware County. Prohibition went into effect on January 15, 1920. In January of 1922, uh, the court in Delaware County issued, I think it was 72 liquor licenses, you know, which on the face of it seems kind of strange. Does he not? But there, <laughs> there was a debate as to exactly what was legal and what was illegal as far as alcoholic content. They claimed that wine, the people in the county claimed that wine and 3-2 beer, near beer, was legal. And so the brewery continued to operate, and they claimed that they were making near beer, and then when, that was, when they were told that was illegal too, they claimed that they were brewing beer for export. Was that legal? Oh, sure, sure. Um, just like distillers stayed in business because you could still sell alcohol in drugstores for medicinal purposes. Uh, from what I've been able to determine, the number of medicinal prescriptions for rum just skyrocketed during the <laughs> 1920s. Um, you could continue to produce wine because they're sacramental wine and they didn't impinge on any, any religious services. So McClure claimed that the brewery was, it was now in the export business, but um, every week, on a given night every week, all the streetlights for a four or five block radius around the brewery would all go out mysteriously. <laughs> and the, the residents claimed that these trucks would pull up and, and they'd be there for a while and then they'd disappear. And all the roadhouses always had plenty of beer. It was just, <laughs> prohibition didn't work in Delaware County. Um, well, you say that uh, McClure or the machine had a setup where um, a certain, there was a certain license fee for uh, running a speakeasy and, oh, yeah. and, and then yeah. the police would leave you alone, is that right? Yeah, they, uh, you paid this, essentially what it was, was a tax, kind of an informal liquor tax. And as long as you, you paid your money, I mean, some, some people would call this extortion, that's what the federal government called it. They not only left you alone, they also would warn you uh, of federal agents who were planning to raid you on the other hand, if you refuse to pay the, pay the tax, every week or so, John McClure would give this, this hit list to, I think, John Ryan, uh, the father of former Speaker of the Pennsylvania House, uh, Matt Ryan. But he would give John Ryan this hit list of, of places that had not paid their tax, and they would be raided. But what would happen is they would be raided, the people would get locked up, they'd go to jail, they'd pay a small fine, and they'd be out probably by the end of the day or the next morning. And they knew now that they had to pay their tax, and they would be left alone as long as they did. How far into politics did, did John McClure's reach go? I mean, did, did he appoint people to the boroughs or, or run the elections down in, because there's a lot of boroughs in Delaware yeah, County. Yeah. And then was he able to do that at the state level or have any effect at the federal level? Well, number one, he was primarily interested in Delaware County. Uh, as far as how far his reach went, he created this kind of informal body, governing body for the county, the, the Delaware County Republican Board of Supervisors, or most people in the county just know it as the War Board. Each one of these supervisors was responsible for a certain area of the county. They or their subordinates, whether they be mayors, precinct captains, you know, committee men, they were the ones who selected people for various offices at the various levels. But the war board and 
essentially John McClure had the power of veto over any one of these appointments. So he virtually controlled every single appointment at every level of government in Delaware County. He kept a book. I've never saw it. It disappeared after his death. But he, he had a book which a couple of reporters saw, uh, which contained the names of every single patronage job holder in the county. And one way or another, he said yes or no. Now, a lot of times he would go with what is underlings. He was smart enough not to just be dictatorial. Unless he had good reason to oppose somebody's appointment, he didn't. You, that also applied to U.S. Congress. Absolutely. You have in here that McClure wouldn't care who you voted, if you voted communist in Washington, as long as you voted Republican in the local. Yes. McClure's view was that parochial. Consequently, if you take a look at the Republican stranglehold since the Civil War in Delaware County, you can't name any statesman, any governor, anybody who has done anything. Not a single one. And I should flip over here where you talk about uh, Congressman Watkins, G. Robert Watkins. You say at any given time, there were at least 10 members of the war board who were quote unquote stupid and thus easily manipulated. Perhaps more than any other figure, G. Robert Watkins typified a marginal intellect enjoying the favors of McClure. Watkins began his career, business career, running bootleg alcohol for McClure in the 1920s, later became a congressman. And then um, you, you write in here about some of the gaps that he had and he yeah. learned to be quiet and it says he seemed to think the less the public knows the better, one unkind reporter sniped. In Watkins case it's a sensible policy. He makes statements only when forced to and then he usually sounds like a clunk. Yeah. Um, Not very flattering toward <laughs> G. Robert Watkins. Well, G. Robert Watkins, who, and I have to admit there's a building, the Watkins building out on 202, I guess in Congerville. Um, when I talked to Judge Kraft, Judge Kraft was district attorney in Delaware County after the Second World War and up to the time he went to the federal bench. But he told me a lot about Bob Watkins. And, and this, is, in fact, it was Kraft who said he was stupid. He was just a stupid man. But he was a really, and I, he couldn't have been all that stupid because he, he, did, he was a successful businessman, at least for a while. But he was one of these people who blindly followed McClure. Whatever McClure wanted is what he did. And because of this blind following and the fact that he was not particularly brilliant, because if you were brilliant, if you showed any promise, if you showed if there was a threat of being able to build up your own individual political power base in the county, you were put into kind of a benign banishment somewhere else, which is exactly what happened to Bill Kraft. That's what they used the federal bench for, or jobs in Harrisburg. But Bob Watkins was just a blind follower. He did what he was told, and as a result, he enjoyed a, a wonderful career, first at the, at the township level, and then the county level. He, he served in Harrisburg, and he eventually became a congressman. Uh, but then he got embroiled in, in a, an internal fight on the war board and John McClure fired him, threw him off the war board and unceremoniously just dumped him. And in typical Watkins fashion, he said, well, John McClure made me, John McClure can break me. That's politics. And he eventually he was rehabilitated. But he was, Watkins was the stereotypical uh, organization hack. Now, not all of them were hacks, and Kraft was one. Kraft was a, was a remarkably smart man, uh, but he wound up on the federal bench. He wound up outside the county. 
where he wouldn't be a threat. Can I ask you a little bit about yourself for sure, a minute? Sure. You referred a couple of minutes ago to your students. Who are your students? I teach American history, mostly 20th century American history, at Millersville University. I've been there for, this is my fifth year there. Um, and I teach Pennsylvania history, I teach constitutional history, um, I teach modern American history. And uh, this, Pennsylvania history particularly, because politics is my, my area of specialization, um, I use Delaware County kind of as a case study. Delaware County, while the McClure machine, in my estimation, was more powerful than most, it certainly was not unique. Uh, Southeast Pennsylvania, if you had traveled from Montgomery to Chester to Lancaster to Dolphin County, you would have, you would have found this collection of uh, county bosses that, that ran the county uh, pretty much like McClure did. You're a Delaware County native? I was born in Sharon Hill, yes. Graduated uh, from Monsignor Bonner High School in 1967, <laughs> but you didn't go to college to Millersville until... 1983, was it? 1988. 1988. Yeah. What did you do in between? Well, it took me a while to decide what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, I spent two years in the service, and when I got out of the service, I, the, the prospect of going to college and being a starving student just didn't seem... I had gotten used to having a couple dollars in my pocket. So I went to work. I worked in the city uh, for a while. What city? Uh, in Philadelphia. And uh, I eventually got involved in... I, I got a job in the car business, and I worked out in uh, Ardmore, Pennsylvania, for McGowan Ford for years, and, and selling cars. Well, I'm fixing them, selling them, doing pretty much everything, and, and I stayed in, in in the car business until oh, sometime in the 70s, and then I went into the construction business. I had always had an interest in uh, in building things, and I kind of taught myself to be a carpenter, and I got involved in construction, which and I was involved in in Philadelphia. Uh, in the Rittenhouse Square area of the city. And in the mid-80s, I left Delaware County and I moved out to Lancaster. And I, w I did construction work out there. I was on a construction job in 1988 in the spring, and I saw an advertisement from Millersville uh, for their summer classes. And one of the courses that was being offered was essentially this course in, in uh, comparative religions. And I thought, this, well, this is probably more interesting than watching reruns on television. So almost on a whim, I registered for this course. I didn't have to take any SATs or anything because I was so old at the time. Um, and it turned out that this class was taught by maybe the most charismatic man on the campus at the time. This, this was this amazing philosophy professor. He would kick and scream and swear and jump up and down. It was, every night was an act in the classroom. And I thought, gosh, if this is what college is like, I've really missed a good bet. So I took more classes with no intention of pursuing a degree. Uh, but as time went on, I started thinking about a degree, and, and people were telling me, well, you really should get a degree. So I continued with my undergraduate degree at night. And by the time I was about a junior, people were talking to me about graduate school, and you should go to graduate school. Um, and I just kind of poo-pooed that. I was just here because it's fun. But nonetheless, I applied, and, and I happened to get into Delaware, and they funded me at Delaware. So in, University I graduated, of Delaware? University of Delaware, yeah. I uh, graduated from Millersville in 93 and went off to Delaware, and uh, four years later, received my Ph.D. from Delaware. And it's, it's just a, 
circumstance, I mean, I couldn't have been luckier. At the time I graduated, two American historians retired from Millersville. So they were looking for somebody, and I was lucky enough to get the job. So I found myself back at Millersville with yet another change in career, you know, from being essentially an office worker to a, a, a car person to a contractor. And now I'm a professor. <laughs> it's, it's great fun. Is this your first book? This is my first book. This book is based on my doctoral dissertation. Uh, my father, I should say that my, my dad in the mid-50s, he and another man named John K. Brown became very active in democratic politics in Sharon Hill. Uh, they were singularly unsuccessful. They won nothing. Um, but I'm from a big family. I have eight sisters and three brothers, and the ones that were, are old, were old enough, we were running around the county during their campaigns, delivering literature, putting in the people's mailboxes. And, uh, this kept up for three or four years. So I had these memories of my dad in politics, and the name McClure was just this, you know, this evil entity somewhere in the county. When I got to Delaware to graduate school, uh, John McClure's house at 20th and Providence in Chester where the house that he had, his father had had built, was put up on the market and sold. And there was a little thing in the, in the local paper about the sale of the house. Um, and my dad cut out the clipping and sent it to me. He said, this, this would make an interesting paper for you to do for one of your classes. So I started poking around. And I was told by pretty much everybody, you're not really going to get much because, again, no paper trail. Um, I wrote a paper for a seminar that I was in, and the professor said, that, yeah, it was a good paper, but it doesn't really have potential as a book or a dissertation because you're just not going to find the documentation. Uh, but I was obstinate, I guess, you know, with the memories of being a little kid and just the fact that I found it so interesting. Um, I sat for six or seven months in the Delaware County Historical Society looking at microfilm, looking at Chester Times, talking to Chris Templin and other people out there that just knew, you know, had spent their entire lives in the county. And from a combination of newspapers and, and the people that were nice enough to talk to me, I was able to piece together the story, which I, I believe to be fairly accurate. What was John McClure like as a person? I want to read this one part here. You say, <laughs> you quote somebody as saying, he was cold, he frightened most people. <laughs> When you went in to see him, you thought you were going into the presence of the Almighty. People just cringed. Guy DeFuria said that to me. Um, he was. He was not. I forget the name of the artist. The painting is American Gothic. You know, the picture of the farmer. And his, that's John McClure. And that's not, not only did he look like that, but that was his personality. He was a very, apparently, a stern and, for the most part, humorless man. Not a man to make a lot of speeches in public. But Guy DeFuria said that it was like going into the presence of the Almighty. Uh, Thatcher Longstreth told me the same thing. Longstreth, at one point early in his political career, had occasion to go down to Chester. You know, he, he had an audience with McClure. And he told me they didn't last more than 15 minutes. And you knew when your 15 minutes was up, you had to leave. Very businesslike. Um, I don't know of anybody ever telling me of a, a situation or a story or an incident where they said he laughed about anything. He was all business, and his business was politics because he thought he knew best how to govern the county. Um, 
Then a lot of people apparently agreed with him. Now, you say uh, in the book that uh, the African-American population in Chester continued to grow throughout mm -hmm. McClure's reign, mm -hmm. and yet they continued to vote Republican Yes. to this day. Yes. How is it that in, in Chester and in Delaware County, the black voters vote <laughs> so heavily Republican? That's a good question. Um, the common wisdom is that in 1936, you know, Robert L. Van, the editor of the Pittsburgh Courier, wrote his famous editorial advising his black readers. And the Pittsburgh Courier was perhaps the largest black newspaper in the country, advising that it was, it was time for African Americans to turn Lincoln's picture to the wall, to abandon the party of Lincoln and vote Democratic, which they did for the most part. They never did in Chester. And from what I could tell, it was because the, the machine saw, looked after the black population in Chester in a way that the Democrats never could. Before the New Deal, before the, the social safety net that was created by FDR, it was the machine that provided various services to people. But in Chester, they continued to do it after Roosevelt had gone from the scene. Uh, any number of things. If your kid got in trouble, you know, some kind of minor scrape with the law, you could, if you were a Republican, you could go to your committee man and uh, it would be taken care of. If you had a kid that, that showed a lot of academic potential, but your circumstances were such you could never afford to send them to college, the machine would see to it that they got an education. I've always contended that one of the big things that the machine did and one of the, one of the ways that they maintained their loyalty, the machine controlled admittance to the county nursing home. For people in an era, particularly before Social Security, you know, what you do when you get old and infirm, or what's going to happen to you, uh, that's a serious question for a lot of folks. You didn't get into the county nursing home without sponsorship. Uh, from a committee man or whatever, some functionary in the machine. So it behooved you to be a Republican. Um, since the Democratic Party never was able really to establish a power base of any sort in Chester, the people in Chester, the black population in Chester, continued to vote Republican. Uh, not just vote Republican, but in some precincts and some elections, vote unanimously Republican. They had these zero wards where not a single Democratic vote was registered. Now, they did vote Democratic at the national level. There's some elections where they, 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 they voted for the Democratic presidential nominee, but not in the local elections. And the machine really didn't count. It would have been nice to have a Republican president because it's a handful of patronage jobs. But you know, like McClure said once, well, those, those federal jobs and state jobs are the icing on the cake. The meat and potatoes are here in the county. And as long as they voted Republican in the local elections, that's all that counted. Now they did, I guess they just got fed up with things in Chester by 1991. Um, and for one term they had a Democrat in the mayor's office, but it didn't last. Did the machine try to make sure that uh, Chester stayed segregated? I don't think so. Um, I, I, I think the machine did what it thought best for its own interests, which and and what that translated into was doing 
what would satisfy the largest part of the population. So while they weren't, they weren't too concerned about Chester being a segregated city, they certainly uh, were very effective in kind of informal ways of keeping the historically white parts of Delaware County white. Um, I remember there's one election in 61 or 63, I think it's 61, where machine candidates for office in Chester campaigned on their support for uh, various programs for the black population of Chester and you know, presenting themselves as the champions of, of African-American uplift in Chester. At the same time, you know, a handful of miles outside the city, in Springfield, Delaware County, the machine operatives there actually brought blacks from Chester out to Springfield on the Sunday before the election and had them go through homes that were up for sale, that were having open houses. And having these blacks from Chester tell the people in Springfield that they were there at the behest of the Democrats who wanted to see Springfield integrated. Um, so the message that they were, the, you know, the Republicans of Springfield was, these, these, it's these Democrats that want to integrate Springfield and we have to keep it white. While in Chester, the message was just the opposite. And in, actually in Sharon Hill, where my dad lived and surrounding towns, this was the era when you had these, uh, the public school jo district joints, you know, joining school districts. And in Sharon Hill and Collingdale, the Republicans campaigned in opposition to the creation of a joint school district which would have included Darby Township, which was majoritively black. So the message they gave was the message that they thought people wanted to hear. What was remarkable is the people in Sharon Hill didn't have any clue what was going on in Springfield, and the people in Springfield had no clue what was going on in Chester, or vice versa. And that particularly, they, they, they were remarkably successful. They, they elected two dead men to office that year. Um, was, was part of the message also if you vote Democratic, then maybe Delaware County will be annexed by Philadelphia? Well, that was, this was kind of the boogeyman that, that the machine would raise whenever it, it thought convenient. Yeah, the, the Delaware Countyans like this idea of they live in their own little town, little borough, and they rule themselves, local rule. Um, I contend that it's a fraud, that it's really not the case. But nonetheless, that's what people, that's what people like to think. And the, the threat has always been Philadelphia, annexation by Philadelphia. The whole regionalization movement that began in the 50s and into the 60s, and it seemed like what some people wanted to do was create this, this megalopolis that stretched from the Northeast, I guess, down to the Delaware state line. And the Republicans were very effective in using this threat for their own purposes. Uh, and actually, if you talk to people in Tinicum, that's a threat that, that, that's still very much alive today. You have Tinicum and, and the airport and whatnot, and uh, what chunks of Tinicum Philadelphia will be after next. Philadelphia is this place, number one, that's run by Democrats. Number two, that has a, a significant black, if not a majority black population. And Delaware County wants nothing to do with it. Uh, Although you do quote Senator Joseph Clark as saying, Philadelphians do not want to import <laughs> corruption into our fair city by annexing the most corrupt political machine in the yeah, state. Yeah, I guess that was a time before the Democratic Party in this city <laughs> was too corrupt. Yeah, he was out there campaigning for uh, Richardson Dilworth when Dilworth was running for governor. 
and, and to counter these these because Dilworth, one of the, the, the things that, that that the Republican Party in Delaware County said about Dilworth was if he becomes governor, the Delaware County is essentially just going to be sucked up and absorbed by Philadelphia. And that was his response that that are you kidding? Why would we want to to tack on this corrupt county onto our fair city? <laughs> are cities worse off today because there are no political machines? I or think there are. are. I think there are political machines. I don't think that, uh, I think that Philadelphia is run by a political machine. Uh, it's not as obvious. Uh, the people that run the machine are not the public figures that you had in the past. You know, probably the last great big city machine figure that we think of is, is Richard Daly in Chicago. But there aren't any James Michael Curleys and Frank Hagues and Tom Prendergast. Do machines provide the kind of services for people that they used to? Some. With, with the social service net that, that governments provide, they're not required uh, to provide the same, the same type of services or services to the same degree. But I think at least while in southeastern Pennsylvania, including Philadelphia, I think machine politics, while it, its nature has changed somewhat, it's still very much alive. There aren't a whole lot of Democratic office holders in Delaware County. There aren't a whole lot of Democratic office holders in Lancaster County. Uh, there's a group of party elders that, uh, that control both counties. And I suspect, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on machines in New York or wherever else, but I suspect they might not even like the term machine, and prob they probably don't like it. But very powerful political organizations that hold sway. Well, like the, the Democrats of Philadelphia have been here since the Dilworth-Clark Revolution of 49-51. And it's as difficult for a Republican, uh, well, cats tried twice, uh, a Republican to gain the mayor's office in, in Philadelphia as it would be for a Democrat to get elected to the county commission in Delaware County. What's particularly amazing to me is over the years how closely those two counties have cooperated despite their political or their on the surface their political differences. One of Joe Loper, the former speaker of the Pennsylvania Senate, he's now a, a lobbyist in Harrisburg. One of his clients is the city of Philadelphia. One wouldn't think that John Street would hire this prominent Republican, but nonetheless John Street says he's doing a great job for us. We're out of time. <laughs> this is the cover of the book we've been talking about, Ruling Suburbia. John McLarnon, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.